When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's our time. Oh, what to have to wage equality once and for all. That a new day is on the Welcome to Women vs. Hollywood, the new podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and author of the book Women vs. Hollywood, to which this is a tie-in podcast. We figured this would be a nice way to introduce the book to people who hadn't read it, and hopefully a sort of additional source of information to those who have. In this episode, we're going to be looking at festivals. Film festivals are often the first point of contact between a new film, a new filmmaker, and an audience. They're the way that we discover exciting new directors, exciting new stars, and exciting new films in the first place. But historically, festivals have been, you can guess, dominated by white, straight, cis, able-bodied men. So we're going to be looking at whether and how that's changing. Because film festivals can affect female filmmakers' careers in ways that we're going to be discussing. And in the past, they haven't always treated women well. But we have to hope that things are changing, because there's a lot more people now looking into this, examining the festival's choices, and really questioning whether they are actually showcasing the best of the best. We're going to be joined today by four guests, uh, including Claire Binns, who's worked in the film industry for decades now and is the Acquisitions and Programming Director for Picturehouse Cinemas. We'll also hear from Holly Tarquini, the Executive Director of Film Bath and founder of the feminist rating system, the F Rating, which I highly recommend that you look up. I also got to catch up with culture journalist Sophie Monks-Kaufman when I attended the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year. But first, we're going to hear from Tricia Tuttle, who's the Director of Festivals for the British Film Institute. So that means she leads both the BFI London Film Festival and BFI Flair, London's LGBTQI film festival. I asked her about how well women are represented at film festivals compared to the rest of the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think festivals have always, particularly international film festivals that really draw from around the world, really have always been better represented than, um, you know, sort of transatlantic English speaking industries, which tend to rely quite heavily and be dominated by uh, American studio production. So, you know, if you look around the world at many other countries, I mean, Arab countries have great sort of usually have better female representation than some European countries. 
And there, there are definitely countries and regions that tend to overrepresent with female directors. So with festivals, when I got into festivals, I was in the enviable position at the London Film Festival that I followed two female directors who were both very interested um, in films by women. So London Film Festival for several decades has had a great history of sort of spotlighting uh, work by women, looking for discovery work by female directors and and then sort of showcasing those in prominent positions in the festival. Um, I was deputy head of the festivals before being artistic director, becoming artistic director in 2018. And my predecessor, Claire Stewart, was very, very passionate about um, showcasing female directors and really set us not not, not so much quotas but targets to um, we were always um, you know trying to ensure that we had bettered ourselves every year in finding new female directors and in profiling female directors so year on year since 2013 the festival has sort of increased to the point where now we we typically have around 40 percent um, of the films in the festival directed by women. Um, it's, a, it's still important to say we don't set quotas because I think um, we never want a, a woman um, to feel like her work is selected because she's a female filmmaker. I mean, this is it's quality based, but we are really digging. We're looking for new voices. We're really interested in new voices. And when you look, you find. I mean, you've mentioned new voices there and sort of discovery. And I think that's one of the, the most important things about festivals. But can, can you speak about you know, what it is that festivals really do, why they matter for young filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, festivals help grow audiences for filmmakers. They help demonstrate to funders of bigger projects that those filmmakers um, have an audience. I mean, I can think of two really great examples from this year. Shannon Murphy, who made Baby Teeth, screened her debut feature in our first feature competition um, in 2019, and she was nominated for a BAFTA this year. Um, for that incredible work. Um, also, Chloe Zhao, who has um, won the BAFTA and the Oscar for Best Director, is a filmmaker who has very much been nurtured on the festival scene. Um, London Film Festival screened her previous two features, and we screened Nomad that Land last year. So those are two really great examples of filmmakers who have sort of grown up showing their work and, and, and making audiences aware of what they do through the festival circuit. Um, also, if you just look at what's happened last year with the higher grossing films um, and, you know, so many of them from female directors who came through the festival circuit. Um, lots of the, the, the comic adaptations right now, and particularly Marvel, the directors like Kathy Yan, um, Kate Shortland, Chloe Zhao are, have come through through festival circuits. Yeah, it's, it's been really striking the last year or so that you know we're actually beginning to see this kind of thing because it's happened for men, hasn't it, for decades? An indie the film, of, you know, and then you indie go film, on, darling, and then you go on to make a Star Wars. Absolutely, it's incredible. Um, so yeah, so so that's basically why this matters. Why festivals matter in terms of just giving opportunities and, and giving you the chance to have a, a sort of an ongoing career. So yeah, so that you can just keep making films, even if you're, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying big Hollywood movies, it's not just about that, but you have the capacity to keep making indie movies or keep making, you know, tiny, low budget, very personal pieces, but you've shown that there is an audience for them. Or, you know, go on to work in television as well too. I mean, festivals are places for discovery for public audiences, but they're also places for discovery for the industry as well too so we run a really vibrant domestic and international industry program the you know we have over 3000 delegates 
who come to the festival and year on year we run we we ask for feedback on why people come to the festival and it, quite often it's it's looking for new talent looking for new filmmakers to work with so it really does matter who you put in front of those investors if you're only screening work from male directors there is no space for the industry to discover to discover new new female filmmakers and you know someone like Shannon I mean she'd already established herself in television in Australia Shannon Murphy so I don't want to overstate the importance of a, a, a spotlight London Film Festival but putting her in our first feature competition uh, was really important to us and I know that gave um, the industry that was a real signpost for the industry like we, we believe in this filmmaker watch this film um, and making sure that you do um, spotlight female filmmakers with talent in, in your program is, is a really, really important way to ensure that sort of onward um, onward journey as well. Yeah. And Baby Teeth is a fantastic film. I mean, it's, it's so it's so great that so many people got the chance to see it. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's like she made that film. So, you know, it played in Venice. I, I wouldn't overstate the importance, but you have to at every step of the process is 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 really important it is really critical in sort of raising that profile and building an audience yeah absolutely so i mean you know what are the differences between you know the ways that men and women have maybe been treated at film festivals in the past and i am going to frame this historically because i think things are getting better and it's still a work in progress but you know it, it feels like you go back 20 30 years and you were seeing you know, the, the same names, maybe not so much at London, which I think is, has always been a little bit more outward looking, but the sort of the cans, the, some of the big festivals, you, you see the same people coming up over and over again, the same people being showcased over and over again. And, and that maybe creates this illusion of a very fixed state of affairs in terms of film. Who are the people that matter and who are the people that we are looking for? If they're all quite, you know, homogenous, I think you're maybe in with a bit of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the whole problem with sort of canning canon building in general it's um you know what someone's established with festivals it's really interesting like if you think about it uh you know from a festival director's point of view um a lot of festival directors might be in post for a couple of decades uh, you know more than a decade and over the course of that decade they're building relationships with filmmakers filmmakers they you know might see they might see a short film and fall in love with it and then they're they're sort of building a longer term relationship with filmmakers it then is something you know i know this myself as a festival director it's like once you've invested in a filmmaker you want to see their next project you keep looking you want to support them because they're someone you've got a relationship with and that inevitably um you know if you haven't started in the early years of your festival director career investing in in female talent then it is going to be a sort of more of a closed circle um of who's going to who's going to get in you know you've got your new Pedro Almodovar this year you've got your new Pablo Lorraine it's like is there space for discovery um films and how much space do you allow for discovery and in that space for discovery how much space do you mentally sort of target or ensure that you're going to find uh, find female directors to to fill that space I mean, I think what's interesting at festivals is um, and seeing Shannon Murphy with Baby Teeth and Eva Husson, um with Girls of the Sun. It's like you're seeing this sort of first or second time feature filmmakers being elevated into competitions of the major international film festivals. And I think that does speak to the fact that they're responding to, you know, international, um, not just pressure, but, you know, sort of passion 
to see those platforms used to profile new filmmakers. Um, so definitely, there. I, I think that the pressure from the industry and pressure from women in the industry is having a positive impact, definitely. But it is interesting, isn't it? It's like, you know, when you think about, well, there's always going to be, Jane Campion is always going to get a place at the table. Claire Denis is going to get a place at the table. But there aren't that many established filmmakers of that level, female filmmakers of that level. So it's great to see first and second time feature filmmakers being elevated into that space as well, too, because otherwise we're never going to break we're not going to break the cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And you're and you're beginning to see that with, you know, even at this point with Chloe Zhao is, you know, already almost after the rider when Nomadland came through, she was suddenly at that stage. Yeah, and Kathy Yan as well too. I mean, to go from Dead Pigs to a DC film is quite extraordinary. But yeah, no, I think it is. I think it is really encouraging. And I think it, it seems to me, and from talking to yourself and talking to other festival directors uh, for the book, it seems like the, the major kind of... Um, hold up now in terms of reaching those targets um is is production is is who's getting green lit still and that's that's happening that's changing as well i think but maybe you know it's it's got a long long way to go before it gets to anything like 40 percent or let alone 50. yeah i i read a really sobering statistic which i'm sure you've seen in 2020 67 percent of the top grossing 250 feature films had um no had fewer than four women working behind the scenes i mean that is just you know, we can talk about the successes at the top in the top ten, top fifteen percent, but when you look at that, you see how far we have to go, really. So it's clear that we still have a long way to go before women are fairly represented at all levels of the film industry. So I talked to Holly Tarquini, executive director of Film Bath, about the ways in which film festivals in particular can hold women back. Interestingly, it's something which I've been talking to lots of film festivals about recently. So about two or three years ago, we were having lots of issues at our film festival in Bath. And I thought that those issues were probably national and not just us. And so I tried to yoke together all of the UK film festivals into a kind of union so that we had some sort of power, as it were, or that we were better able to articulate the ways in which we benefit film. But more recently, kind of following on Black Lives Matter, I've been trying to talk to the group about who programmes the film festivals, because lots of the UK film festivals, including ours, were set up by older, middle class, cisgendered, heterosexual, white men, which is great. And they've done enormous amounts of work for nothing. They've done it because they're passionate about film. But I'm very interested that they have always felt that they should and can tell people what to watch, that their taste is valid and that their programming is a kind of official selection, that they have that authority. And I'm quite interested that so few film festivals have been set up by people not like them. So, yeah, I'm very, very interested in who programs the film festivals and how and if that influences culture. Because it, it feels like it, there probably is a knock-on effect. I mean, this is something I've, I've talked a bit about in the book, but it, when you have all of these kind of gatekeepers, film festivals, critics, even awards voters, if they are all dominated by, as you say, you know, cis, straight, white men, then, the, you know, there may be blind spots. There may be things that are overlooked or undervalued as a result. And one of the issues is that 
our festival, like lots of other UK film festivals, programs very diverse films. So we're programming films from all over the world. We've got a strong LGBT strand because of the F rating, 50% of our films are directed by women. And so it would be quite easy to sit back on our laurels and say, well, our program's diverse. So does it matter who's choosing them? And actually, I think that's really important. And what we've done in the past, which I really regret, and I see other organisations doing, is we've brought more diverse programmers in, but we have anticipated or expected or asked them to programme in their image. And so instead of saying, what is your passion? Lots of assumptions have been made about that, that what that passion is, which again, wouldn't be made about a white cis straight, able-bodied man. You wouldn't think, okay, so the films you're going to like are all about white, cis, straight, able-bodied men. You would think that they might have all kinds of different tastes. They might be passionate about horror or sci-fi or they might, or world or, you know, art house, that their tastes will be broad. And I think often a ludicrous assumption is made that if you're trans, then what you're interested in is trans or LGBT films, and that's what you should programme. And all of that pigeonholing, which has gone on forever, it's not just in film festivals, we, we have to stop doing that. We have to invite diverse thought into our organisations as much as we're inviting diverse people. And we then need to welcome the passions that come with those people. Absolutely. And just, just and that will get give you a, a hopefully at least a a truer representation of the breadth of film out there. Yeah, and I think one of the issues, I was talking to a really interesting um, young Muslim woman in London who has been through lots of the programming training courses. So there are lots of really great programming training courses, but there are lots of people that do a lot of those training courses and it doesn't lead to paid work and it doesn't lead to the kind of authority of being the director of a film festival, it leads to lots more of the training courses to include diversity. Um, And she was saying that one of the problems is that she's not welcomed in her entirety as herself. So if she came along and said, actually, what I'd really love to do is a TikTok event because TikTok is what I love, then all the kind of gatekeeper, older straight white men, would be saying, I don't really know what TikTok is and it's not really our audience and we don't quite know how to do that. And they wouldn't even recognise that what they're doing is shutting that off. Yeah, that, absolutely. It's it's just seen as a default setting. And I think it, it that comes from groupthink, doesn't it? It comes from having a lot of people with similar outlooks on life sort of going, well, our way makes sense to all of us. So it can't really be, you know, it can't really be a minority view. Look at all of us in this room. We all agree with it. <laughs> um, and time as well. So our festival is 31 years old this year. And for 31 years, there are three men that have been involved for all 31 years, mostly working for nothing with enormous expertise and experience and talents and insights. So they are fantastic. And they have 31 years of trying things and them not quite working. So it's understandable that they and other people like them, and I'm not saying that they do do this, but that they could say, you know, we've tried that, it didn't work, or that's not the audience that currently comes and we don't really know how to attract a new audience. So... All of these things are being done by really well-meaning, liberal-minded, good people who aren't knowingly doing it. So it's not a kind of, this isn't it's not a misogynist and racist. No, yeah. exactly. And so, and I think in a way that makes it harder 
Because if you've got an overt misogynist or a racist, then you can say, well, when, you're not welcome here, <laughs> you know, so thank you very much. You can, you can leave now. So I keep referring it to as consciousness raising, but a friend of mine said that she thinks that that means raising the consciousness of people externally. And what I mean is raising consciousness internally. So it's that feminist process that you go through if you are a feminist of unpicking all of the patriarchal beliefs and internal misogyny that you have. And I think that we all need to do that all of the time with all of our, with classism, with ableism, with sexism, with racism. All of us have it. It's all inside us. And it's a complicated and painful process to unravel it all. Absolutely. And, but first of all, you have to acknowledge that it's there. I mean, there's a lot that you've talked about that I want to unpack, but I kind of do want to go back a little bit to sort of just first principles, you know, just to be kind of clear to, to listeners, you know, what is the importance of film festivals, you know, to young filmmakers and, and, and indeed older filmmakers? You know, what what difference do they make or can they make to a career for good or for bad? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And we should probably start with saying that there are lots of tiers of film festivals. So you've got your top tier film festivals in the world that are Cannes and Venice and Toronto. Um, and then you've got your kind of little next step down, which is London and Edinburgh and this in the UK. And then you've got your next layer, which is regional film festivals, which we are one of. And then you've got kind of bazillions under that. So you've got some which are a weekend, some which are a day, some which are a month. So it's a very, very varied landscape. And new film festivals are popping up all of the time. Everybody operates in slightly different ways. So there are competitions, there are awards, um, there are festivals where distributors go to buy films that they're then going to put on in cinemas and each of those film festivals has different values so the big ones where films are being bought are massively influential and they are obviously like and I expect like the rest of the world I know the film and television industry better and it is absolutely who you know and who you're friends with but I also think we're human creatures and that that's what the world is like I don't think it's just film this year in Cannes, as per usual, most of the films here are directed by male directors, especially in the main competition. Now, women are beginning to break through in the certain regard and director's fortnight um, lineups, but it's still very much a male-dominated situation, which is weird. You know, you see a, a film today like Benedetta, which is literally all about nuns, and it's written and directed by men, albeit based on a book written by a woman. I don't know sometimes, it's very strange. That was a clip that I recorded during the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year. While I was in Cannes, which is, look, an amazing festival showcasing incredible films that, you know, also has some blind spots. I also caught up with fellow journalist Sophie Monks Kaufman, and we discussed the appalling gender imbalance that it tends to exist in the very biggest film festivals. So uh, just to put this in context for listeners, uh, Sophie and I are sitting on the press terrace in Cannes overlooking the old port uh, and a big Ferris wheel. It is unbelievably scenic. We both have a little cafe noir with us and um, we're talking about festivals. And this is something you've been quoted on recently in the, in the papers, uh, the appalling gender imbalance that tends to exist in the biggest film festivals, right? Yes. And it's embarrassing when you consider films that actually are programmed in competition. For example, Sean Penn's Flag Day 
Um, it's bizarre that he's been invited back with that because his previous film, Last Base, was the only screening I've been in where there was ironic clapping, uh, <laughs> mocking laughter. So that tired old argument that Thierry Frameau likes to use, which is that he's not interested in gender, he's interested in quality, seems to be debunked by the quality uh, of the work he has historically programmed. And maybe Flag Day will surprise me, but in the past I've not been surprised. So I, I think there's something something fishy at work there. Mm, there's, a, there's a star power thing going on and since most of the biggest stars and certainly in terms of directing have been male you get this kind of continuation right you get this thing where oh we need to program the new Sean Penn the new Quentin Tarantino the new Scorsese the new whatever film because they are the guys who will bring people to the festival. That's exactly it yeah there's this desire to make sure you've got a certain amount of press coverage which comes from having stars on the red carpet which is why we had a, one of the reasons why we had an opening film that starred Marion Cotillard the queen of French cinema and Adam Driver the king of American cinema it's, that's always a consideration and it's a factor but they can't ever be seen to admit that so there's like a just a low level duplicity humming along in every single press statement yeah, I'm, and we're not picking on Cannes here, like this is a general festivals issue and it, you know, it is a real issue as well, like they do have to sell tickets, they do have to get press coverage, right, to sustain themselves, but it's in this vicious circle, isn't it, where we've got, you know, the big names are the male names, therefore you have to give them the attention, therefore they keep getting the attention, therefore they suck up all the oxygen, therefore people can't break through. I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have come from the worlds of film, television, music, food, comedy, and podcasting. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. I also talked about Cannes and other festivals with Claire Bins, the Acquisitions and Programming Director for Picture House Cinemas. I asked her whether she's noticed things improving for women at film festivals in recent years. Slowly. <laughs> Very slowly. Uh, Sundance is a different thing, which is why I, I, probably in many ways... I mean, I love Cannes because Cannes has riches of film like you cannot believe um just the greatest filmmakers the greatest films etc putting that to one side but i think sundance has always had an eye on independence and making sure that there were film directors 50 percent you know women film directors it was very key to them the diversity so I kind of have always loved Sundance for that because I know that I'm going to see the kind of films that you don't get at other festivals. Cannes is a monster as well because it does set the standard so much. And they have been appalling, really. If you look at it, the number of films by women, um, they're, same for Berlin, um, same for Venice, you know, or, or New York, all those festivals have not really been doing a very good job. 
And again, they've had to wake up to the fact that women are just not going to put up with it anymore. So they are changing. But I think it's quite difficult for them. They don't sort of, it's not in their DNA. They're doing it, but not because they kind of passionately believe this is what how things should be. I think it's more that they're being pushed in that direction. Of course, film festivals don't just exclude women from their film programming. They can also literally exclude them from galas because of restrictive dress codes. In 2015, yes, 2015, not 1915, some women were stopped from attending events at Cannes, specifically red carpet premieres, because they weren't wearing heels. Security guards on the red carpet, this is genuinely true, stopped women in flat shoes because they considered them insufficiently glamorous. Now, in the case of one of these women, Danish producer Valeria Richter, she was wearing flats because part of her foot and her big toe had been amputated a few years earlier, which sadly did not sway the security guards on that occasion. The festival's director, Thierry Frémaux, told Variety in 2019 that he supported female filmmakers having a certain feminine sensibility and said that some things are purely feminine. However, women are fighting back against these attitudes and they are beginning to change. The rules on red carpet dress, and in particular on heels, have been changed after that appalling incident in 2015, I'm very pleased to say. But also women are fighting the bigger fights at Cannes and the other big, big festivals where the press attention is most focused. In 2018, 82 female filmmakers, including Eva Hussen and Eva DuVernay, walked the red carpet to draw attention to the festival's treatment of women. Since the festival's first edition in 1946, 82 films by female directors have been selected to compete for the Palme d'Or, compared to 1,688 films by male directors. I asked Holly Tarquini of Film Bath about the changes she would make to ensure that this kind of gender disparity becomes a thing of the past. So I've thought about this. Good. (laughs) (laughs) And what I would do, and not just in festivals, at the BFI, and the BFI, in fact, have just done it. So I'm quite hopeful about the BFI at the moment. Um, And with all major organisations, I would do it with all film, not filmmakers, but studios, anybody that's um, funding film, is put intersectional feminists in places of power. Because all you need with so many films, I'm sure you found the same, so many times you watch a film and think, why didn't you just show it to me? And I could have told you all of those things that Twitter is going to be absolutely on your back about. I could have said, don't do that. Don't make her take off her clothes for no good reason, because, you know, it's 2021. Don't shoot up the back of her skirt because it's 2021. You know, there are so many simple things or make your crowd scene half women, maybe have a wheelchair there, maybe have some black people in the crowd because that's what our culture looks like. There are so many really simple things, which if you had even one intersectional feminist at the top of your organisation, you would do. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, And and with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the F rating specifically, because uh, that is your baby. And it is uh, a really good tool, basically, in, in sort of 
measuring how far we've come, I think, in some ways and, and sort of putting a value on, you know, who's making these films. Yeah, so the F rating was something that I came up with in 2014. It's a really simple rating which is applied to all films which are written and or directed by women. If the film is also stars significant women in their own right, it receives a triple F rating. And the plan was for just to use it at Bath Film Festival, but happily it's become international and is now used by over 90 organisations around the world to highlight the films in their programmes which are directed and or written by women. And the reason that I chose written and or directed is firstly because there were so few women in 2014 um, writing and directing films. So fewer than 5% of the top 250 films that year had been directed by women, which is ludicrous. And what I'm really interested in is who's telling the story. And obviously the writer and the director are the chief storytellers. There have since been other ratings and other um, stamps which have been applied to films and actually reframe. They've really drilled down into not just gender, but also race. Um, I think they're trying to look at class, which is always difficult, and it's American, so it's less kind of obvious. But that is, you can see it at the ends of films. And that rating means that you have to also have had lots of your crew be a protected characteristic, basically. And even though films which are directed by women tend to have more women on the crew, it's still really dire how many of them have a director of photography, composers, are nearly all men. And obviously, we're not going to have enough women to direct if you're not making it up through the ranks. If you haven't got enough assistant directors who are women, then where are you going to find those directors? So, yeah, there there is so much more work to be done. Absolutely. But it's at least it's a start. It's something that you, you can sort of point to. I mean, have you seen a have you seen a shift in the years that you've been doing the F rating? Have you seen any improvement? So 2020 was the best year, wasn't it, for women in film since about 1920. <laughs> oh, God, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it's only been 100 years. And I do wonder if that was because so many of the massive big budget films got held back. And those massive big budget tentpole films are still predominantly directed by men. Um, and instead, we got a lot of really rich, amazing films directed and written by women and we I think we heard about them more because there wasn't all the noise being made by the big male kind of dominated films so yeah last year was really magnificent and it is such a joy to see films like Promising Young Woman that are coming out and saying all the things that feminists have been saying for the last what 50 years um, to have that finally on mainstream film and celebrated feels remarkable. And the Oscar goes to Emerald Fennell, Promising Young Woman. Oh, they said write a speech. And I didn't, because I just didn't think this would ever happen. And I'm going to be in trouble with Steven Soderbergh. I'm so sorry. I don't want him to be cross with me. Um... Oh my God, he's so heavy and he's so cold. I'm him down. Well, that was Regina King, obviously, presenting Emerald Fennell with the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for Promising Young Woman at the 93rd Oscars earlier this year. 
The film had had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival on the 25th of January 2020. Um, Sundance has always had a much better record for supporting female filmmakers than most of the old world uh, festivals over here. But it's not just films by women that need to be championed at these film festivals. Other marginalised identities need to be recognised and celebrated at the biggest festivals with the biggest audiences. Tricia Tuttle, director of festivals for the BFI, has made a particular effort to improve representation for queer filmmakers with BFI Flair, the London LGBTIQ plus film festival. I asked her about the impact BFI Flair has had on the wider film industry. I, I think beyond uh, beyond a doubt that queer film festivals over the last four decades, as they've um, ex- you know used to be when Flair first started, it was called Gay's um, Own Pictures, and you know it was mostly films by um, male queer directors. That's that's ex- expanded and and diversified in in the last couple of decades, but also you know that the sort of pink ceiling, as it were, has broken in mainstream films, and you see so many more queer filmmakers whose work is being distributed, you know, across many screens and across many platforms. You see those filmmakers going on to make bigger films and to be picked up to make television projects as well too. Um, so, you know, that, that's been hand in hand. I think it has done for queer filmmakers what festivals right now are, are trying to, um, you know, support filmmakers, female filmmakers breaking, breaking through. What are the unique challenges of, of queer people, and especially queer women, facing in, in the industry? Well, I think for queer filmmakers, what, um, you know, time and again, you hear, you hear queer filmmakers say that they're being told their stories are too specific, too niche, that broad audiences won't identify with their stories. I mean, female filmmakers have had the same problem. And, you know, the more that they're invested in, the more that's disproved. And, you know, like you think about It's a Sin, which is one of the queerest things I've seen on television, just you know, sort of dominating conversation this spring in the UK. And that didn't make any concessions for non-queer audiences at all. Um, and there are many examples of, of, of disproving that idea that only only queer people want to watch queer stories. It's like great storytelling really does have the power to change the way people see the world. And if you continually say this only this audience wants to see itself, then we're never going to, you know, filmmakers who are perceived to be niche are never going to break into the mainstream or never being, will be given the opportunity to break in the mainstream. It's so so inspiring to see um, something like We Are Lady Parts do so well as well, because, you know, I have friends who are Muslim directors, queer Muslim directors who are told this story, who, you know, for the past decade have been trying to get work made and have been told this story won't translate. No one in Britain will want to see this unless it's directly relevant to their lives. And I think that that's so clearly a false, uh, you know, a a, a false notion that we're now um, sort of... uh, breaking breaking all, all of those ideas, which is exciting. I think that's the the grand overriding idea actually you've just hit on, which is that, you know, you're you're not using cinema's potential if you're only speaking to people who look like the people on screen or, you know, or one kind of person. Cinema's potential is is empathy and is putting us in the in the shoes of anybody, 
anything in the world, you know. And and if you're if you're not telling specific stories about specific people, you're you're kind of failing to make use of cinema. It seems. I know that's absolutely true. And you know, I think the other side of that as well too is you're repeating yourself over and over again if you're just telling the same story for the same perceived audience. And I know now when I see a film, you know, I've seen several this year where um, as we prepare for the festival, which are big budget, high production value feature films, very well made, very well produced, where there are like two women in the film and otherwise it's, you know, white, white men. And it's just really dull. It's really dull. And it's not just me who's going to think that. I don't think these are going to land with audiences. Audiences want to see something different. You know, I mean, they they really do. And I mean, I, I, I hope that I'm vindicated in that when these films come out that, you know, those aren't, that's not what people want to see now. They want discovery. They want to empathize. They want to understand other people's lives. I really, really genuinely think that's what audiences are craving. And I think that the dismantling of this myth that, you know, straight white cis man is some kind of able man, able-bodied man is some kind of human default status. That's kind of what we're all trying to do right now as a society, I think. That's what everybody needs to kind of take apart. Definitely. And I, I think it's great that we are all being more critical viewers as well, too. But, you know, ultimately, it, you know, it is critical viewing, but it is also... Um, People are consuming more visual storytelling now than at any time in our lives. You know, it's like we we're staying home. We're watching great television. We're going back to the cinema now that it's open. It's like the more you see great visual storytelling, the more you want to. And there are endless stories out there and endless people who can tell those stories. And if you just keep repeating yourself, um, you know, it's bad business to do that as well, too. So again, and this is becoming a refrain already for this series, we are in a position where female filmmakers and other marginalised identities are facing an uphill battle to be taken seriously, especially at the biggest film festivals. While some, like Toronto and Sundance, have made a real commitment and real progress in welcoming female filmmakers and other marginalised identities, there is still this perception that the kind of big ticket filmmakers at the biggest festivals are the same old suspects. That if you have the chance, you automatically programme a Quentin Tarantino, a Denis Villeneuve, a Park Chan-wook, a Martin Scorsese, over pretty much any other alternative. And, you know, sometimes they're absolutely great. And sometimes, you know, they're Sean Penn and their last film was absolutely dreadful. And yet they still get programmed and they still get asked back. So I think there is still a long way to go before we can say that film festivals are genuinely, blindly choosing the very best films out there to showcase on the biggest stage. And that they're doing so in a way that is fair to all filmmakers and not just to the biggest and most established names. But at least we're having the right conversations. We're seeing real progress in measurable terms, in terms of the numbers of women and other minority groups invited to these festivals. We're seeing an opening up of subjects uh, that festivals consider worthy of inclusion and worthy of discussion. And we're seeing flat shoes on the red carpet at Cannes, which, you know, may not seem like a big deal, but it's a step in the right direction. So thanks to all our guests, to Holly, 
to Claire, to Tricia, and to Sophie, who, by the way, had much more to say, but my blooming recorder stopped halfway through and I didn't realise until later. My apologies to her in particular because it was fascinating. (laughs) You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work. Um, So please do so because you will be fascinated to learn what some of these women are up to. But we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. And before you go, here are a few underrated female-led films that you might have missed, personally recommended by our guests. Here's Trisha Tuttle. Anything by Joanna Hogg. I would urge, if people haven't seen a Joanna Hogg film, go out and see them all. I think she's just so terrific. Souvenir. Uh, part one, which is one of my favourite British films of, of recent yeah. years. So it's not so much underrated because I think people in the UK know it, but she should be, you know, top top ten gross, top top <laughs> top ten grossing films. Up um, there with the Avengers, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'd say go back if you haven't seen um, Chloe Zhao's first two films. I'd say go back and see those. Um, they're beautiful songs. My brother taught me in particular. I just think. Not many people have had the opportunity to see it, and it's it's really wonderful. Here's Holly Tarquini. Some of my favourite films include... So I loved One Night in Miami, which came out over lockdown, and is just... I just think it's the most beautifully written and crafted and acted film. Um, and it's one of those films that I've thought about a lot, which is actually magnificent for me because I don't tend to think about things after they've happened. So if I do, it really means that something has landed. Here's Claire Binns. Honestly, I'd say Proxima by Alice Winnicott because it has disappeared and I think it's still out there. It's certainly streaming on Netflix. It's a film that is complex and it shows her breadth and range as a director. That was our guests recommending the work of Joanna Hogg and Chloe Zhao, as well as the films One Night in Miami and Proxima. You can also find a list of all these films and their directors in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, from Robinson Publishing, anywhere that books are sold here in the UK. But in the US, it will come out in November, unless you're interested in audiobooks, in which case I believe it's already available. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. It really does help. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You just heard a Stripped Media production.